Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Good Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us well by email ogc at accessradio.biz and check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity. We have our own website as well, offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest, who is a professor in the sociology of religion at Queen's University Belfast and a member of the Royal Academy. Our guest is from Maine in the USA, but has lived on the island of Ireland since 1999 and in Belfast, Northern Ireland, since 2006. In fact, in 2014, she ran for Northern Ireland in the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. And in 2022, she won the Belfast City Marathon outright. Meanwhile, in research, she focuses on the role of religion in conflict in places like Zimbabwe, Northern Ireland, plus evangelicalism and the emerging church. In 2015, she won a Distinguished Book Award for her co-authored book, The Deconstructed Church, Understanding Emerging Christianity. Our guest has her own website as well, and her recent research output included clergy as first responders, rethinking leadership in religion and peace building. So, what are the similarities between Zimbabwe and Northern Ireland? And how did the church and leaders respond in the troubles, and what has she learned from it? It gives me great pleasure to talk to Gladys Ganiel. And Gladys, thank you so much for letting us come down here today and be in your home. That's why it sounds a bit echoey for those that listen at home as well. So thank you very much indeed for that. No worries. So for those that don't know where you live, whereabouts do you actually live then? Belfast. And you've been over here how long? I've been in Belfast since 2006. And, and I lived in Dublin five years before that, where I did my master's and PhD. Well, let's see what else we can find out about you then. The, the five classic questions, or maybe not so classic. <laughs> Fingers on the buzzers, no conferring. Question number one, Gladys. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Now, can it be more than one person? As it's you, yes. <laughs> okay. I think I would like to talk to John Wesley. I've always been intrigued by him as a sort of um, figure in church history. I'm really interested in his sort of energy over many years, because if you look at his life, I mean, it was sort of unbelievable, the schedule he kept up. I mean, in terms of all the, the travel around England and Ireland and, you know, when he was a missionary in North America and the writing and the constant preaching and, it's, you know, he just seemed to never stop moving. So I would like to really see how he managed <laughs> managed that. And I mean, of course, there are a lot of biographies of Wesley and so on and so forth. And you can get a, a, some sort of insight into that um, by reading it. And um, I suppose I've, I've read a couple Wesley biographies. And mm-hmm. I think I recall that at times he did literally like physically collapse and have to lie in bed for a couple months at a time to, to recover from his exertions. But in terms of that kind of focus and energy for what he believed his mission to be, I think he'd be quite an interesting person to talk to, to try to get, you know, to the bottom yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good answer for a start. Before we move to your second one, you're not the first person to choose John Wesley. <laughs> so there might be a bit of a fight over that one, but it's a, it's a great thing. And the thing I remember most about reading his biography was that he just didn't understand women. I don't know if you picked, <laughs> yeah. did you pick on about that? Yeah, well, see, I think the fundamental mistake was he married the wrong woman. Because <laughs> 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 I, I mean, if I remember correctly, I think there was... There was actually a, a woman that came with him to Ireland on some of the missionary trips who was probably would have been better suited for him. Yes. Um, I think her name was Grace. Yes. Something or other. But there was some, she ended up marrying somebody else. She did. And that was probably the problem. I think he could have had a life 
probably with her. They were probably a match, you know, but then the person he ended up marrying, I don't think they were suited at all. And then, of course, I mean, there were sort of letters to other women and stuff yeah. that were a bit... Um, <laughs> I don't know what I'd ask him about his love life. I don't, <laughs> I don't want advice from him <laughs> on that matter. The thing was, when, when you read the biography of him and you talk about Grace, who went... Yeah, yeah. He thought, I'll give her a job and she can be a minister in Dublin. Yes, so he didn't yeah, have yeah. any problems with women ministers. Yeah. But his idea was, I think, behind the scenes, was that if he... Sent her over to Dublin. He's then got carte blanche to go and see her. But John, why didn't you just ask her out? That's all you had to do. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And I mean, like, the thing with him and women as well, I mean, I also obviously think his mother was the real evangelist. I mean, I know his dad was the minister, but yeah. wasn't there the stuff his dad went away for a couple of months and the mother started having Bible studies in the house and all the people in the town preferred her Bible studies to his father's <laughs> preaching? <laughs> I forgot about that. That's that's a really good point. Yeah. So, so in terms of his attitude towards women, I mean, a lot of it probably comes, you know, from having a mother who was a, she obviously was a, a strong, she had 10 kids, right? A strong character, but also mm. very gifted in terms of ministry, really, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, that's a good choice. Anyway, John Wesley. <laughs> and your second one then, as you are so nicely. Yes. Well, well, I would like to talk to Paula Radcliffe, okay? You know, the uh, yes. former world record holder in the marathon. Now, again, she has biographies and such, but as a runner, you know, I obviously read a lot of biographies and memoirs of runners, but they don't ever reveal their real, <laughs> you know what I mean? They only tell you so much Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, the experience of the training and how hard it is and a lot of the, the psychological aspects of it. I mean, you can, you do get insights from these, but like particularly um, her memoir, you know, I think it, you could get a bit more out of her. <laughs> and especially, I also think her, her experiences of being really the best in the world mm -hmm. and then the disasters at the various Olympics, mm. you know, how do you come back from that? There's been a couple of television documentaries where she has discussed that a wee bit. Okay. And she seems to have come to terms from it. I don't know that her, I think her husband may continue to be more upset about it as the vibe I get from some of the documentaries. <laughs> he's from here, you know. Oh, is he? he is, he's, he's, I think his club was... Oh, it's a Balamina in Antrim or something like that. So he came from that neck of the woods. Okay. So um, he, we've got a local connection to Paula Radcliffe as well. But I get the feeling that he's just more upset about it <laughs> than she is now. But I, but I don't, I can't prove that, obviously. I'm not personal friends of Paula Radcliffe and Gary Locke. But, you know, in terms of, you know, you're the best in the world. You've dominated your event. And, you know, to have those sort of disasters at Olympics, how do you, you know, Well, I'll tell you what, let me just phone up now. <laughs> She says you've only got one question to ask her, though. What would it be? I think I would ask about how she came back after the, you know, especially the one in Athens, mm -hmm. the Olympic marathon in Athens, because she was the big favorite for that. And, you know, it was a disaster. I mean, and stuff came out afterwards that she had a bit of an injury. She probably took too many anti-inflammatories that upset the stump, this, that, and the other thing. You know, a few months later, she won the New York marathon. Mm -hmm. as, as well you know still you would think something like that would after you retire does it continue to bother you you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah you know yeah. well two good choices and if you mm. do mention athens to paula when she turns up <laughs> uh can you just ask her please what's a grecian urn um leave it at that <laughs> moving on from a very old joke question two who's your favorite biblical character or your favorite biblical story or your favorite parable please gladys yeah and i have more than one go on then <laughs> okay so and for the biblical character, I like Joseph, you know, not Joseph, Jesus's dad, but Joseph. Of Arimathea, he says showing off that. I can not that, not that, <laughs> no, another Joseph. 
Joseph who sold into slavery. Oh, yes, that Joseph with his coat. Yes, yes. You look at the story of Joseph in, what, Genesis, right? It's yeah. Genesis. It's a long story. It goes on for chapters and chapters. You know, there's a lot in there. I suppose he has an interesting character arc, you know, because he is a bit of a pain when he's, <laughs> when he's the favorite child, isn't he? <laughs> I've had another dream. <laughs> exactly. So you can understand why his brothers, yeah. don't, you know. But at the same time, what they did to him was absolutely horrible. And you sort of look at this kid who was like, he's like probably a teenager when this happens, you know, who goes from being the favorite to, you know, slavery, yet yes. still has some sort of resilience and resources to, yes. to do his job well, to do what he's supposed to do. He's Then he's, you know, more injustices inflicted on him, and yet he keeps his head. He doesn't despair. And, you know, when push comes to shove and he, he has the opportunity to show mercy and forgiveness, he does it, you know. I like I like him. I think he's a good character. Yes. Mercy and justice. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. So from that one then, you said you wanted to choose something else yeah, or someone else? I, yeah, yeah. I also like Ruth. Um, ah. Yeah. Whenever she goes back with Naomi, she just does her, her job, you know, what's expected of her without moaning about it. You know, I admire that. <laughs> yeah, she's very much like me. I never moan. <laughs> um, she seems... You know, to do the right thing yeah. without expectation of reward. I mean, obviously, and then there is good fortune or reward or whatever you want to call it. And she is accepted as a, a foreigner, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. You know, um, any expectation she would have had, I suppose, going back with Naomi would be that she would be possibly rejected because of who she was and where she was from and this, that and the other thing. And probably... The people that Naomi had left, they probably resented Naomi as well for leaving and getting out of there when, yeah, <laughs> when yeah. times are hard, you know. So to go with Naomi to what could have been like not a very nice situation and then just to kind of get stuck in and do the right thing is to me very admirable. Yes. Know? Good answer. Have you got any more? No, that's it. Okay, good question. I, I know because there's like one, so I figure <laughs> a two is probably the... <laughs> well, no, listen, my old motto, if you don't ask, you don't get <laughs> Question three. Now, you've got a choice here, first of all. Yeah. Because you are of a different persuasion. You are um, from across the pond. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to be Prime Minister of the UK or President of the USA, first of all? Oh, you didn't ask about Taoiseach. I know. Oh, <laughs> oh sorry. Three things then. Yes, yeah, so you were in Belfast. You're going <laughs> to... Naughty me. Three things then. What would you, which one are you going to go for? There's actually... Here I am. Two, right? <laughs> They're related, okay? Because... I think both in Ireland and the UK, the policies towards immigration are very unfair. Okay. Okay. So like in, in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, these sort of like, well, they're not concentration camps, but they put them in like these direct provision centers. All right. Okay. Do you know this? No. Okay. I didn't know about the UK and the hotels that were supposed to be put up in. Yeah. 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 Well, in the Republic, there are some refugees and asylum seekers in hotels as well but they have like these direct provision centers down south be something like a an old um holiday home caravan to park type place yeah and, yeah and they're it's not an ideal place for people to be right it kind of echoes ireland's history of institutionalizing people that they have um, a problem with you know i'm not saying it's the magdalene laundries or the um, industrial schools but it's a similar type yeah, vibe yeah, yeah. you know just put these people in this camp basically and um i think that's very unjust and there needs to, you know there's got to be a better way that immigrants refugees asylum seekers can be welcomed into the the country you know and that kind of camp type vibe is very very damaging mm -hmm. i think especially you know if they're 
people don't forget with kids and, and that it's almost like it's not a prison but it's almost like yes. a prison an open air type confinement that's not really fair i mean it's a similar thing in the uk we don't have direct provision centers per se like that but um i don't think we've done a very good job of being hospitable considering you know there's talk of sending them to rwanda and such that's not a great example of hospitality thank you for that and of course <laughs> Uh, combining the t-shirt job and the prime minister job, I could have said a few years ago, what, what, we'll make you president of the EU. That'll get out. <laughs> I can't but, do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's out the window as well. Thank you. Good stuff. Question four, outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out so far, please? Yeah, well, you do. You mentioned the Commonwealth Games at the beginning. No, I did. But that, that was good. <laughs> I mean, it's not, I suppose when you think about Commonwealth Games, you can't say it's like a day. I mean, there was the day where I ran the marathon. But it's really like the whole experience and the build up yeah. to it and everything. And, you know, on the day, the race, I had a good race. So, you know, that's kind of what you want at a major championship. So that was good in and of itself that I ran well. But two hours 40, wasn't it? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah. It was something like that. And that was before the super shoes. <laughs> they, and they've invented shoes now. 2017, they were put on the market that make people faster. Really? Yeah. I can talk about that more later if that's of, of interest. But yeah. <laughs> but so be, you have to look at times now before the shoes and after the shoes. Oh, really? Yes. Oh. That, yeah. That's why Paula Radcliffe's world record got broken because <laughs> they have these super shoes now. There must be a pun to do with soul in there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was pre-super shoes. So 240 on that course on, on that day was a very good time. If you had your super shoes, what would you have done it in? Well, they've actually they've done studies of these, you I'm know, sure. like scientists, right? <laughs> and they reckon that it varies on the person. Right. But for elite athletes, you can expect maybe a two to five minute improvement. No. And over a marathon. Yeah, it's massive. Wow. It's absolutely massive, yeah. Well, I've tried these new super golf shoes <laughs> and <laughs> it was supposed to be far better yeah. for me, my swing, my posture and everything else like that. I don't like the super shoes because I think they're they're fundamentally unfair. And you may think, well, why is that if everybody has them and everybody does have them now? Yeah. The thing is, that, again, some of these studies they show is that some people benefit more from them because they will change your form a wee bit, your foot strike. Um, is that what they have is they have a carbon fiber plate inside them in a, in a very thick foam. Yes. Which helps with um, propulsion. And the way the plate is, it helps where you plant your foot when you land. Yeah, yeah. So people, if you were more a heel striker, you get more of a benefit from it. Whereas if you're more midfoot to forefoot striker, you get less of a benefit from it. Yes. So the heel strikers probably get more benefit because it pushes them a wee bit to have the form that will naturally be faster. So I mean, most elite athletes have the, the mid to forefoot strike anyway. Not all, but most do. So the elites probably benefit less from them than somebody who's running slower. Yes. And you would see a lot of the club athletes and recreational athletes do wear these shoes now, which are ridiculously expensive as well. But I don't like that they are, some people benefit more from them. You know, it's like the, the technology is playing havoc with what would have, might have been a different result. But anyway, you, Nike created them and they rule athletics, so they're not going to ban them. <laughs> <laughs> not just yet. It's interesting though, because I've already mentioned golf. But it's like the, the way the technology has evolved in the yeah, golf clubs. Yeah. And every so often you see a very good golfer take out a golf club, a driver, let's say, from the 1930s compared yeah, to yeah, the, the yeah, current one. Yeah. So if we go back in time, yeah. I mean, I first remember watching Dr. Ron Hill run the marathons yes, yeah, in the yeah. late 1960s. In a string vest. It was a string <laughs> vest. It was. I suppose he was wearing the equivalent of plimsolls, wasn't he? <laughs> Pro yeah. I mean, up until, like in 2014, the shoes I wore in the Commonwealth Games 
they weren't much different from plimsolls because what you wanted was the lightest possible shoe yeah. on your foot. I mean, you have very little protection uh, with that, but you could go faster. But then afterwards, your legs are in absolute bits. Now, like I run the marathon in these super shoes and I mean, I'm sore after, but it's no comparison. Like the, yes. you recover so much better. Like I said, I, I fundamentally don't really like them, but at the same time, <laughs> I'm like, I just ran a marathon and I feel much better. <laughs> well, it's brilliant. And people are listening and saying, what's a plimsoll? Over here, they're known, they're known as gutties over here. Daps in Bristol, old-fashioned training shoes, you know, yeah, yeah. tennis shoes. Yeah, very, very thin soles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. made yeah. out of canvas and stuff. Wow, well, there you go. So, yes, I'd like to have known more, but unfortunately... <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what question I was answering. Uh, it was about your most enjoyable day out. Oh, yeah, the yeah. Commonwealth Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... You, <laughs> That's brilliant. So question five then, what has been your most embarrassing moment to date then, please, Gladys? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me this. So I thought about it and I like, it's not really that much I'm embarrassed about. I'm, fu- yeah. I'm fundamentally quite a boring person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not part of this goes from being an athlete from a young age. So yeah. you're, I, was always, I was into sport from the time I was young. You know, I played basketball first and then I did distance running. So and I suppose I also had a personality that you weren't going to do anything ever too extreme that could be embarrassing. Yes. Because, you know, you were very concerned about how that would affect your training the next day or this, that, and the other thing. I suppose I avoided lots of embarrassments that could come with youth because of, <laughs> of leading quite a monastic type lifestyle. Yes. But I never thought of that, that as a sacrifice because I really, you know, I didn't really have the desire to do things that were a bit more crazier. I hear that. Yeah. I suppose that, like... Little things like, I mean, I've had a lot of students over the years and then but sometimes you forget their names and you meet them and you're like, you're embarrassed yes. because you can't remember the name, this, that, and the other thing. But again, I mean, in the big scheme of life, I mean, it's it's bad you've forgotten somebody's name, but it's not the, the worst thing in the world. No, it isn't. Either, you know what I mean? So That's how you dig yourself out as well, isn't it? Yeah. As, as I do quite often, just fishing, throwing a coin in to see <laughs> what ripples come back. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, you're yeah. my wife. <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> Which has actually been an embarrassing moment for somebody else as a guest. Yeah. Yeah. So that has happened. I suppose I have done like stupid things in terms of like, again, this goes back to the athletics, being reckless with your body. Now, maybe you could classify this as embarrassing, but one of the things athletes that compete at elite level do is sort of routinely ignore signals of pain and distress. Yes. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes, I was trying to qualify for the Olympics in 2012. Um, and this is, again, before the super shoes, so you don't recover well between <laughs> marathons, right? I was trying to get the qualifying time. So I ran, like, three marathons in the space of four months or something like this. Mm-hmm. And after the last one, I had destroyed my Achilles and then couldn't run for, like, six months. So, yeah, maybe that would be it. I mean, again, it's probably an embarrassing thing to do to yourself, like this form of self-abuse. But at the same time, it's there's yeah. a bit of craziness when you're in that elite endurance and you were trying to make the Olympics. Well, you keep wanting to push yourself, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Any normal person looking at that would be like, that's absolutely ridiculous thing to have done. I think any normal person would say, 26.2 miles, (laughs) I'll drive it. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was training for the Commonwealth Games there. We had support from the Sports Institute out at Jordanstown, and they have physios and sports doctors. I actually had a wee injury before Commonwealth Games as well that they helped me manage really well. But I remember going into the sports doctor and they were doing a scan of my foot and he's like, well, I know you guys don't do this for your health, so. <laughs> like, yeah, that's absolutely right. That's true, isn't it? Begs the question then, moving into what we're here for, really. What made you, though, want to, from an early age, or maybe not, look at, into politics and, more importantly, you know, the troubles and everything else within yeah. certain countries? So, growing up, I grew up in Maine. Maine, it's obviously, it's a northern state. Mm. It borders Canada. But the religious 
culture where I grew up is quite conservative evangelical in that part of Maine. But I experienced that as a relatively positive thing. I mean, in some ways it's all I knew, but it was, you know, my experience of God as mediated through that environment was more positive than the negative, you know. And I was leaving high school. I had an athletic scholarship for running and I went to Providence College in Rhode Island. So that's a, a Catholic university run by Dominicans. And the running coach is Ray Tracy. He's from Waterford. His brother, John Tracy, was the silver medalist in the Olympic marathon. Also on Thunderbirds. Thunderbird 5, John Tracy. Is that the same guy? No. I didn't think so. <laughs> but the, John Tracy, the runner. Silver medalist, right? And yeah. Ray, his brother, also ran internationally uh, for Ireland. Was the coach of Yeah, the other John Tracy's a puppet. <laughs> I don't know those you John don't, You don't know Thunderbirds. No. Oh, anyway. That's my you, you, didn't, you didn't know the silver medalist in the marathon, did you? No. No. <laughs> Yes, so his brother is the coach there and he recruited athletes from Ireland. A lot of the team was Irish, both the men and the women. I remember it was it was 1998 and the World Cross Country was going to be in Belfast. So there were English people on the team as well, English and Irish. So one of the nights at dinner, one of the English guys was, you know, just trying to... Show off? No, no, not show off. Okay. Sorry, I said not. I do not intend any stereotypes. But he said some. He was trying to just annoy people a bit. You know, poke. And he said something about the world cross country. We're going to be at on home soil because they were in Belfast. Okay, so yeah, so that did poke people a wee bit. And then one of the other people sitting at the table said, "Well, the problem with Northern Ireland is it's all about religion." And up until that point, I had no clue. Really, I hadn't really thought about Northern Ireland. But because religion had been a positive experience in my life, that kind of sparked an interest. Yes. And I haven't taken, I took an Irish history course. I think I was taking it in that year, but it was more ancient Irish history or whatever. But that made me want to study the contemporary period a bit more. So I did then my undergrad dissertation on religion in Ireland. You know, you could do independent research or whatever. So that's how I got interested ah. in it. It was basically that conversation at dinner <laughs> one night. And then whenever I was time to graduate, I wanted to go to, to graduate school, so I thought I just would go to, to Ireland and pursue that particular interest. And I mean, it was easy enough to come to Ireland. Um, I went to Dublin for university and I, with my teammates, I had a couple teammates living in Dublin at the time who had graduated as well. So it didn't seem like that big of a deal, really. Yeah, yeah. You know, going to California would have been more difficult. Probably would have taken longer. Cause you've been <laughs> That's true, actually. So I'd like to pick up on something that I think is very interesting. About the church leaders. We know a lot now on the news and documentaries on TV, certainly over here in the UK, about the troubles and what it was all about. But I think one of the things that's forgotten so much is about what the church leaders did, or in this case, very few church leaders, because that's my understanding. So perhaps you could tell us what you found out in your research as to how big a problem was it that church leaders weren't stepping up to the plate compared to the few that were? What did you find out? Yeah, so there's been quite a bit of research on this, not just by me. Um, so did John Brewer, who worked at Queen's for a lot of years. He's, he's retired recently, has has researched this as well. Um, so basically the the main thing is that, as you're saying, like the institutional churches themselves were very cautious during the Troubles. But the, actually, this is a term John Brewer uses. He talks about uh, mavericks within the churches who were the ones who, um, you know, kind of critiqued their own tradition for the way it had contributed to sectarianism or kind of reached out and started initiatives with the other side or whatever. Yes. So, so mavericks, and this term maverick captures the idea that they were on the margins of their institutions and they were a minority and they were kind of very brave and courageous in doing this despite the fact that they didn't have a lot of support from their institutions. 
And I mean, I fundamentally, I suppose, agree with his analysis. At the same time, though, like being a maverick, you also have to answer less to people. You know, if you are somebody at the heart of an institution, even if, if you have the best of intentions, you have to keep so many people happy, hold yes. so many diverse viewpoints together. It is a lot harder to be at the, in the middle of an institution and be a radical, you know. So people on the margins actually had more freedom and flexibility to make the critiques and to take the courageous steps. So if you look at someone like now, the example of Alec Reed and Connor Monastery is quite well known. Um, do you know Alec Reed? No. Basically, um, during the Troubles, Alec Reed set up secret talks between Jerry Adams, representing Sinn Féin stroke IRA, and first John Hume, who's yes. the leader of the Social Democratic Labour Party. It seems he was sort of asked to do this by Jerry Adams, who is, you know, from roughly the area where Clonard Monastery is located. But it's significant that he is a redemptorist priest. You know, they're kind of outside of the hierarchy of... They're not outside of the hierarchy, but they were different. Yeah, they, yeah, you yeah, know yeah. what I mean? No, exactly. But, but, but that position, being a redemptorist, actually gave him more freedom and flexibility to do that sort of thing than maybe a parish priest, I think. Of course, he had to have the will to do it and the willingness. You know, this was a time when everybody said, don't talk to terrorists, but... If you look at some of Alec Reed's writings, he didn't write a lot in terms of personal reflection. He actually wrote a lot, probably of drafts of political documents, right? As he was shuttling papers back and forth between people. But if a few kind of personal things he's written that have been published, he sort of frames this as, you know, what Jesus would have done. You know, you do talk to the person who's using violence, you know, because Jesus would have talked to those people. And then how do you stop violence unless you talk to the people who are being violent as well? Yeah, yeah. So like during the Troubles, nobody knew Alec Reed was doing this. It wasn't publicly known, but it's, it's fairly well known now if you study this sort of thing. There's been documentaries about it, this, that, and the other. So there was people like that doing sort of secret mediations. And, you know, even some of the high level church leaders like Archbishop Robin Eames, he was doing that stuff behind the scenes as well with loyalist paramilitaries and, and so on and so forth. So it is also untrue to say that the big church leaders <laughs> weren't, weren't doing anything either. If you look closely, it's a lot more complex than that. For me, what I've seen from talking to people as well is that one of the biggest apathies around for Christians is the fact that there's just seen people pretend to be a Christian on a Sunday, yes, saying all the right things in the church, and then from Monday through to Saturday, they go back to their old lives. Whereas my understanding, mm -hmm. your understanding, Christianity is a seven-day thing. Yeah, yeah. So if that's the case, why did ministers not step up to the plate with Robin and with Alec and say, you know, yeah. let's talk to terrorists seven days a week? So why yeah. was that? Okay, so there's a lot of reasons for that. <laughs> I <laughs> How think. <have> we got? <laughs> okay, so for one thing, I think a lot of the theologies and assumptions between within both the Protestant churches here and also the Catholic Church mm. is that that's not really what our job is to do <laughs> um, in terms of seeing like peacemaking as part of a vocation. It's almost a lot just don't see that as part of the package. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, that's absurd in a place where there has been a conflict that has had a religious dimension. Now, I don't think that the troubles weren't a religious conflict per se, that people weren't fighting about doctrine or whatever, you know, it was about inequality and economics and mm -hmm. politics and, and all that. But religion did structure the conflict for centuries. And like, if you want to call it sectarianism, it created a sectarian system where some people had more privileges than others, you know, and religion contributed to that. And there were theologies that justified that. That justified power and domination. I, I don't need to go specifically into all those theologies, <laughs> but they did exist. And 
And then, you know, there's theology on the, the Catholic side about, um, is theology the right word? Yeah. But yeah. Both sides perceive their brand of Christianity as superior. Okay. Maybe that's the best way to put it and had theological ideas that justified that position. Now, during the Troubles, I think a lot of ministers didn't want to touch that or make those critiques. One, because, you know, there was a sense that there was not a widespread realization that this idea of blessed of the peacemaker should apply to us in this situation. There was kind of a blindness to that. And there may be, there's a number of reasons for that, I'm sure. But then the other thing is, particularly in the middle of conflict, this is what I talk about in that paper you mentioned at the very part of the introduction, clergy as first responders. Yeah. A lot of them were dealing with people who had just been bereaved or injured or really traumatized by the troubles. So their main immediate job and task is to take care of those people pastorally. And it may not be helpful for somebody who's, forgive the crudeness here, his leg has been blown off to be told, you know, within an hour of this, that they should forgive or make peace or whatever. Maybe that's not the best pastoral response. I don't think it is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so whenever your immediate task is providing pastoral care, it is conducting the funerals, it's comforting the bereaved, it's following up visits for years and years and years. It's a big ask mm. to be the radical maverick who steps across <laughs> and does this, that, and the other peacemaking work. I can I have a lot of sympathy for people who didn't do that because they were so wound up in that pastoral task. And you could, you could also make an argument that that is a necessary role of religion in a situation of, of violence is to provide that space or that context where people who have been bereaved, injured, or traumatized can recover without the pressure to do the radical stuff. At the same time, obviously, I admire <laughs> the radicals and I've written a lot about them. Um, I wrote a biography of Father Jerry Reynolds, who was also a priest at Clonard. So he did a bit of work with Alec behind the scenes with some of those secret talks. Alec was a main driver and Jerry assisted him to a certain extent, but Jerry's thing was more like public ecumenical ministry. And he was very kind of bold in this. So um, you may or may not know Clonard Monastery had a partnership for years with Fitzroy Presbyterian. Okay. And they still do. But, you know, in some of the, the darkest days of the Troubles, as they say, they would have set, had events and so on and so forth. So like in the biography of Jerry Reynolds, I write about some of those events. Um, just to give you a sense of this, so like this would have been probably the mid to late 1980s, Conard Fitzroy had an event where they had a Catholic bishop and the moderator of the Presbyterian Church speaking in Fitzroy together. And the event had protesters, as stuff like this did in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so, you know, protesters inspired by Ian Paisley really. So there are protesters outside. There was a police presence, right? And there was also protesters inside, which people weren't aware of until the yes. thing got started, right? Yes. So the thing gets started and the moderator and the bishop are chatting away. And when, well, the, I guess the moderator speaking, because as soon as the bishop started to speak, apparently one of the protesters who was kind of in the crowd ran up to the front and grabbed the communion table and shouted antichrist. So this is, you know, <laughs> this is what it was sort of like to be an ecumenical interchurch, um, peace builder or group during the 80s. And, you know, the people were actually willing to do that and take those risks is, is also, you know, very impressive. Um, I mean, Jerry worked with a Methodist minister as well, Sam Birch, um, and they had a, an event, a three-day event one time up in a place in North Belfast that the uh, Paisley's protesters picketed at, like, for 24 hours. <laughs> you know, yeah. they were committed um, opponents, you know, um, to faith-based peace building and ecumenism and so on and so forth. 
and it was really important that we had people that was that was doing that more public stuff and it was really important that there were the ministers providing the the pastoral care as well i mean i think actually one of the most impressive groups during the troubles was this organization called evangelical contribution on northern ireland so the acronym is aconi so that's what they would have been known as by that aconi acronym but um, I mentioned earlier how they were getting, you know, destructive yeah, theologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of those theologies um, that was used for centuries, the sort of justified, um, you know, Protestant power, really, domination, came, was inspired, you know, by the Calvinist tradition and the, the covenantal ideas that we're a chosen people, we have a promised land, we have a special relationship with God. And this, this justifies our position here, really. Um, and I mean, the slogan for God in Ulster kind of captures that covenant idea. You're probably familiar with that slogan. Sometimes see it still on mural walls. It's that we have a covenant with God. We also have a covenant with our state, Ulster, right? <laughs> and Akonai sort of grew out of evangelicalism again in the mid-1980s as a critique of Paisleyism and as a critique of the God and Ulster fusion. And what Akonai sort of came on the scene with was this, um, there's an open letter actually first written to the Belfast Telegraph, I believe signed at that point by Presbyterian ministers only. I don't know that there were other denominations in yeah, at that yeah. point, but they all came, well, not they all, but people came from other traditions later. And the title of that letter was Forgotten His Glory Alone. And basically what the idea was is that, you know, the forgotten Ulster thing, the fusion of religion and politics is a form of idolatry. And we're critiquing that now. We, we think it's wrong and our priority should be God. And in our context... Look around you. That means being peacemakers, uh, right? When was this? What, yeah. Kona, I think I think it's about 1985, somewhere wow. around there. And they were a fairly big organization for about 15 years and would have created a lot of resources and done training courses. And I suppose a lot of what in the parlance here in Northern Ireland is called single identity work to try to help people work through the maybe destructive, divisive ideas of their religious tradition to critique them and then to have an alternative. So... Akonai drew a lot on the work of the Anabaptist tradition, things from John Howard Yoder, you know, the politics of Jesus, that type of um, approach for, you know, a separation of church and state and a modeling of a, an alternative peaceful community. And Akonai also would have been really influenced by Stanley Hauerwas, who's an American theologian, Methodist tradition, but he's a, a pacifist um, as well as being a Methodist. And his, one of his main books at the time was called Resident Aliens. And the idea, again, it's this getting away from the Christendom idea of religion being fused with the state. So as a Christian, you're a resident alien here mm -hmm. within this polity, right? And your job is basically to model the alternative way of life of a, a Christian, you know? I'm glad you said that because there'll be people listening today. You know, we have quite a few people listening in American places like that saying, well, I'm not really interested in Northern Ireland. <laughs> you know, it's all very well, Martin, going on about this, but, you know, I'm not really interested. For their benefit, <laughs> what can they learn from what's happened in history? Because the biggest thing I know about history is that we never learn anything from history. <laughs> so let's change it. Let's be more mm -hmm. positive. What can we learn from the Northern Ireland model of what happened mm -hmm. to people wherever they're living in the world today? Yes. Now, this is that's an interesting question. So at Queen's University, I teach a course on religion and peace building. Uh, it's a master's level course and it's full of Americans every year, <laughs> right? So you teach them how to make tea for <laughs> Yes, we have lion's tea or berries tea or panjana or something <laughs> decent. <laughs> Brilliant. And, and Thompson's. <laughs> the Americans in that class, 
very clearly begin to see the connections between what happened in Northern Ireland and what is happening currently in the United States in terms of the polarization and the, the racial polarization in the United States and the theological justifications for it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I granted, I, I do try to teach them this, but I mean, they see it very clearly. <laughs> do you know what I mean? The United States sort of, I mean, it's the same. It's, it's a similar historical dynamic in that there was a colonization and a settlement. Yeah. And it was justified theologically with even some of the same ideas of a, t- a chosen people in a promised land in a city on a hill. And God has given us this land, particularly in the United States. It's sort of bound up with a, a tradition of white supremacy, if you want to put mm-hmm. it that way um, as, as well. So that, that racial aspect and theologies that justified white superiority is not as maybe overt as it would have been historically, but those ideas haven't gone away. I mean, there's, Structural racism in the United States, obviously, but there's also bigoted attitudes as well and continued polarization around racial issues and the best way um, to cope with them. So, I mean, in terms of what in that situation where the United States is becoming more polarized and last time I lived in the United States really was like 1998. And then I went back for a year in between my master's and PhD. And it's, it's a much different place, I feel, in terms of heightened polarization than it was Better or when worse? I lived there. Oh, oh, more polarized, more polarized, you know. When I was in high school, you know, there were moderates in the Republican Party. Yeah. You know, they almost don't exist <laughs> now. Do you know what I mean? The parties themselves have, both parties, I think, have gotten, you know, less, more extreme and less willing to, to work together in a bipartisan way, you know. So it's at, it's at the highest levels of politics and it's also at, you know, the lowest levels of grassroots. In terms of getting back to what you people can learn from Northern Ireland, I mean, I suppose one of the basic lessons is that thing about never stopping talking. Okay, so like during the troubles, things were bad, but there was always people doing their wee bit. You know, whether it was the secret talks, it was the the um, cross community outreach. You know, all that stuff that happens at grassroots level between small groups of decent people who are doing their own little bit to resist the madness. (laughs) You know, that sort of thing can be done, you know, that never stop, stop talking bit. Then the other thing that I think is really important is this ability to critique your own tradition, you know, so that's basically what Akonai did and then had the, had an alternative, you know, they drew on other, another theological tradition, basically to critique their, you know, Ulster Protestantism's foundational <laughs> ideas, you know, they, they used other theological resources to critique that and have an alternative. And I mean, the, for Akonai, it was also important because they're evangelicals that it was grounded in scripture. So as they are making that theological critique, there's this constant reference to scripture because there was that awareness. If you're yeah. going to, if you're going to challenge Paisley and his constant references <laughs> to scripture, you know, you have to also use the Bible to demonstrate that there's an alternative interpretation here. So say within the United States or wherever else it is, that ability to critique the tradition has to, to come in there somewhere so, I mean, right now in America, you get the the term Christian nationalism used sometimes. But this is a term that wouldn't have been used when I was when I lived in the States, when I was a teenager growing up or whatever. But um, and sometimes people qualify it with white Christian nationalism because <laughs> generally people that could be sort of classified as a Christian nationalist are racially white. If we want to, to use those terms, the white Christian nationalist package, you know, would include a lot of the I religious ideas that were used to justify support for Donald Trump and, and so on and so forth. So an ability to critique the way religion is used in that case is probably going to be 
important as well in the American context. Gotcha. You talk about Zimbabwe yeah, yeah. as well. If we flew over there today to Zimbabwe and we had a big auditorium, <laughs> what would you say to them then? Well, now it's been a long time since I did research on Zimbabwe. Um, I was last there in 2007. All oh, right. <laughs> So I think I last published something on Zimbabwe in like 2010, but but that never stopped me from commenting on it. At that period in my career, I spent a bit of time both in Zimbabwe and South Africa, both both contexts, you know, when I, you know, when I was looking at Zimbabwe and South Africa as well, I mean, it was, there's a similar dynamic to some of the things I've looked at in Northern Ireland. And it's the, again, it's those mavericks on the margins of the institutions who were really doing some amazing work. Um, in those contexts and were sort of some of the key activists. Now, when you get to sub-Saharan Africa, religion is is pretty important, you know, not only because people there are just more personally religious anyway, if you, you know, if you do the surveys, you know, people are more willing to say they're Christian and they go to church and this and that. So there's a higher Mm. level of religiosity, but it's also important because in those contexts, churches have resources and they have transnational networks where more resources can be funneled to them. So in contexts where there's like sub-Saharan Africa, where maybe other civil society institutions don't have the same sort of resources that you would get within civic society in Europe. Churches are actually really important institutions in terms of having the capacity to help people on a practical level, you know, people who are in poverty and struggling, but also then to train people in terms of civic behaviors and piecework uh, and so on and so forth. Zimbabwe, now, Zimbabwe, there's actually quite a few similarities with Northern Ireland in the sense that the past has not been dealt with very well, okay? Like, South Africa had the big Truth Commission. Now, there's been, in recent years, there's been a lot of critiques of the South African Truth Commission because it's not fulfilled its promise in terms Mm -hmm. of reparations and, you know, the justice that people hoped would come after that big event hasn't come in the expected way. So, South African Truth Commission is usually considered one of like the best examples, but as the years have gone by, it's been that's been knocked back a bit. But at least they had a Truth Commission. It was a start. <laughs> yeah, it was a cathartic type of event. It was actually very heavily influenced by Christianity because of Desmond Tutu's role as the chair. But Zimbabwe, yeah, they kind of had some sort of Truth Commission thing, but it was a government stitch up basically, <laughs> and you know it didn't really satisfy anybody. So in Zimbabwe, there's a lot of um, open wounds in the past has not been really dealt with in a great way. Now, Zimbabwe, there, well, it was Rhodesia, right? Yes. Um, after the, the war for independence, you know, independence is granted. But the, so the with, the with the ethnic groups, the main ethnic group is Shona. The second ethnic group is Endeveli. And there were some overlaps with ethnicity and political divisions between those two ethnic groups. They kind of had separate paramilitary guerrilla fighters during the war for independence, even though they were all fighting the Rhodesians. Not long after independence, there was uh, basically a massacre of Endebeli people called Gugurahundi that was perpetrated by mostly, you know, Shona troops who were trained by like North Korean army or something like this. And that Gugurahundi thing has been like denied and covered up, but there's still a lot of open wounds yeah. from that, you know, and some of those ethnic divisions remain um, important. The past has not been dealt with adequately in Zimbabwe. And there's, you know, it's a disastrous economic situation. The country, you know, it's been destroyed at a certain level in terms mm-hmm. of having the, the infrastructure where people can have peace, prosperity, and justice. It's big problems, but that fundamental inability to deal with the past is part of the picture. Now, at least here in Northern Ireland, we have no government, but, <laughs> you know, things kind of function in their own wee way, right? It's not, it's not Zimbabwe. <laughs> 
um, at the current time. But we've not dealt with the past in any sort of adequate way. And the current legacy proposals, you know, if everybody is united in their opposition to them, that tells you <laughs> they're mm. united in their opposition for different reasons. But um, that failure to deal with the past is going to continue to haunt us unless we can actually do something constructive and whether you know the late current legacy proposals can deliver that i mean i would have i would have my doubts but key to this i mean it's the acknowledgement and the recognition of the suffering so if you're in zimbabwe and you know your people were massacred and they and this is also important there they weren't buried properly if that cannot be officially acknowledged and recognized by the government that this was an injustice that wound continues to foster and a lot of people here victims feel that they're suffering has not been acknowledged or recognized and i mean at at some level they're they're right so we have to come up with some sort of way that there can be that that recognition and the admission that what happened was unjust on on so many levels i mean you won't get prosecutions and you won't get justice in that sense i don't think but you could get a type of recognition that would be helpful or more helpful than the lack of what we have at the minute thank you so if we were in Zimbabwe tonight, I think what you're trying to say really is that we need to look more at a, a church without walls, which was a, a title of your previous yeah, yeah, website yeah. sort of thing. Tell us more about church without walls and why it's so specific to you. Yeah, well, I suppose um, the idea behind that is that what matters is when you leave the church building and go out and do, you know, good in the world, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what does the Lord require of you but to love mercy and to do justice, et cetera, et cetera, Micah, you know? <laughs> so that's where the church is. It's out there outside the walls of the, the church buildings. That's kind of what I chose that tagline, I suppose, building a church without walls. So the real building up of the church is when you're not actually literally in a church building. Yeah, Micah 6 verse 3, isn't it? I remember that from my earlier <laughs> days. When I first became a Christian, we had a every Bible study would have a, a little a little line for the year. Yes, and I'm yes, sure yes. it's Micah six verse three. <laughs> um, to walk humbly before your God. That's all I can remember, Mike. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true, isn't it? I mean, I think what you're saying also is that if we look at Zimbabwe and Northern Ireland. It is what happens outside a church yeah, yeah. from Monday to Saturday. Yeah. And to start off by owning up and saying, do you know what? The past. Let's discuss the past. Let's get all the pain out. Yeah. And see how we can move forward. So. If it's as easy as that, why aren't we doing it? Mm. Well, it's not easy. I was going to say, I was being slightly slightly sarcastic. Because, I mean, not all victims actually want some sort of, like, public forum like the South African Truth Commission, right? Right. So if you ever watch um, videos of that, to be fair, like, a lot of the submissions for that were were written, okay? But the ones that were on TV that were chosen for the public hearings, it's like this outpouring of emotion, and it's heart-rending, and it's painful, and it's... It's a hard go for the people who are telling their story, the people who are hearing what happened to their loved one. It's tough going. Yes. And, and not everybody wants that. They're not going to put themselves through that. So you can't assume that people, that's what, that, they can't assume that's the type of recognition people want. There's other forms of, of recognition. It's more like the opportunity to choose how, how you want to be acknowledged or recognized. And also to have a sense that people in power acknowledge this so whether that's the government or even some of the churches themselves so I was actually I was involved with a project with the Presbyterian Church there was kind of sort of a small attempt to do this it was initiative of the the Presbyterian Church itself they had this dealing with the past task group and the idea was this was in the context of previous proposals for dealing with the past in Northern Ireland where there'd be some sort of oral history archive where stories would be captured 
and the Presbyterian Church thought, well, we want to contribute to that. We want to hear some of the stories of how people within our church family community um, experience the troubles. So they, um, it was passed through the General Assembly. They do this project. I, I sort of read about it in a report <laughs> at the General Assembly. Then I bumped into one of the, the ministers who was on the task group. I'm like, how are you doing that project? He's like, oh, well, <laughs> they didn't have a clear plan, right? Yeah. So I, I got involved then and we, had, we got funding from the Irish government, actually, to hire a postdoc who worked with me. And we did interviews with um, 122 Presbyterians of their experiences of the Troubles different categories of people like victims, security forces, first responders in terms of healthcare workers, nurses, people who did the quiet peacemaking work, people who had been affected by loyalist paramilitarism, politicians, yeah. you know, a range of people. Um, so we collected those stories and then basically I wrote them up in a, in a book. It's called Considering Grace. And the book itself, it's not an academic book. It's basically just a book of stories. And I say just a book of stories, but the idea in making it a book of stories was that this would be an opportunity for, you know, it's only 122 people and most of them are anonymous, but it's a type of recognition and acknowledgement of the human suffering, basically. And when we were working on that project, um, Jamie Johannes was the researcher who was working with me. A few months into it, Tony Davidson, Reverend Tony Davidson, who chaired the, the task group, he bumped into somebody down the country somewhere who stopped him and said, you know, I just wanted to thank you for, the, I wanted to thank the Presbyterian Church He's like, why? And he's like, well, you sent that nice young man down to talk to my mother about what happened during the Troubles. No one had ever asked her about it before. So, you know, in a sense, that's what we were <laughs> were trying to do. And, you know, we didn't, that, that's not the story of everybody, obviously, who participated in the book. But it gave some acknowledgement from an institution with some power in the, in the lives of those people that there was a recognition of their experience, you know. Mm. So can that type of thing be replicated? That's a, it's an open question, I suppose. Let's make it personal then in the remaining few minutes we've got before we find out who a Christian hero is. <laughs> How has that affected you and your faith, looking at the past troubles, looking at the fact that you're an American living in Northern Ireland, you know, and with a, a very clever brain, you know, how's that affected you? I suppose one of the things like, you know, how I was saying earlier, I grew up in a, well, like a conservative religious yeah. subculture. But one of the things I think that was inculcated in me from that from a young age was that. God's given you gifts. You got to figure out what those gifts are. And then it is your responsibility <laughs> to do your best with that. Right. So that in one way, that sounds really terrifying. You know? <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, it sounds like maybe that's like a, you know, you could, you could reframe that as more a positive thing, right? Yeah, that this yeah. is your, your vocation or, or whatever. I get that. Yeah. It's also terrifying. I guess it's both at the same time. Right. So I've always had this sense of you, there's this responsibility to, you know, to do your best with whatever the task it is that you have to do. And for whatever reason, I've ended up in Belfast, and this is the place and the people that, you know, have dedicated most of my life to, to studying. So I, I see that as it's like it's like a responsibility, yeah. I suppose. And and your responsibility is to do your best with that. No, that's a very good answer. But doesn't it ever sort of cheese you off hearing about all the sadness in the world and that people aren't doing like you, the verses you've already quoted, like Jesus, you know, let's be peacemakers, everything else yeah. like that. Doesn't that ever sort of cheese you off? Oh, of course. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, but if you thought of, thought of it like that, it would be, yeah. It actually, that reminds me. So I wrote that biography of Jerry Reynolds and um, I started it and he was alive, but he died after a month or two after I'd started. So I interviewed him a few times 
and I think it might have even been the last interview I did with him, which is like a week or so before he died. And wow. um, he was talking about during, you know, the secret talks with Alec Reid, there were the secret talks between the politicians and the Irish and British governments. But there's also these secret talks that him, that Jerry and Alec set up with Sinn Féin and IRA people and Protestant clergy. Now, they asked the Protestant clergy to do these talks because they knew no unionist politicians would even contemplate it, right? And they, they thought Sinn Féin and the IRA should hear unionist Protestant perspectives. So they organized these talks that went on for years. And, you know, in later years, Sinn Féin people have said, you know, that was eye-opening for us. It was helpful, you know, this. So we know that they these things were constructive. And I was talking to Jerry that day about those talks. And then he, he was sort of like, ah, oh, but I don't know if it really accomplished much. And I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So even if somebody like Jerry Reynolds <laughs> could think that, you know, at that point in, in his life, of course, you know, and then one of the things he used to write in his diaries, because I had the opportunity and the privilege to look at all his diaries, wow. you know, it's the stuff about just doing that next little thing every day, you know, no matter how bad it looks or if the institutions aren't supporting you or you can see the injustices everywhere. It's just yeah, yeah. your little thing. Yeah. Well, Wake up tomorrow and do the next little thing. <laughs> I said in the remaining couple of minutes, yeah. let's go for it then. As you know, uh, or maybe you don't know, at the end of each podcast, I always ask our guests to talk about their Christian hero. Yeah, yeah. Someone who is dead, someone who's not in the Bible. So mm. that way then, because they're dead, we can go, oh, all right, we know enough <laughs> now. There's no stuff we can throw at them yeah, subsequently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Gladys Daniel, who is your Christian hero, please? See, I've already talked about John Wesley. But you can go for John Wesley again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it probably is. Yeah, and I mean, the other thing I like about John Wesley, I mean, I talked a wee bit about him as well, but do you know the, the story of like when he was a kid and he was plucked out of the fire? No. Do you not know this story? No. Okay, so, um, yeah, so they, they were, the family's all in the house and the, I think it's nighttime and the house catches on fire and they all run out of the house, you know, and they do the head count and they realize somebody's missing, right? Um, so it's him, he's still asleep up in one of the bedrooms. So they had to get somebody to come, I don't know, I can't remember if it was climb up a tree or a ladder or whatever, but they got him out of the house, out of the window. You know what I mean? And um, sort of after that, his mother, again, the mother, she told him he was like a, a brand plucked from the burning and that God must have something special <laughs> for him to do in his life if he had been rescued in this dramatic way from mm. the flames and so on and so forth. I mean, in some ways, I suppose it goes back to the dinner conversation. You know, you would ask him about how the impact of that <laughs> experience, you know, on, on his life you know, the, probably the trauma of it, because I think he was pretty young, like you know, five or six, somewhere like that age, the trauma of it. And then then the experience of growing up, of having a mother telling him he, he, he must have some destiny here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, and then how he sort of went about trying to, to work that out and, and figure that out. Well, I wonder what John Wesley, you know, when he does come around for a meal, you know, in the, t- <laughs> the time machine, and I bring forward, you know, you, you cook him a really nice meal. I wonder what he would think of today and Christianity today. What do you think? Well, I mean, I suppose it's always in need of reform, isn't it? I mean, that's fundamentally what he was trying to do. And and in his day, it was the established church that was ignoring the poor people, really. I mean, that was probably one of his main fundamental things. You know, the, the poor people who wouldn't go to church because they didn't have nice clothes. Do you know what I mean? So that's why he went out into the open air and spoke to those people. Mm. And created the guilds and clubs that lifted those people out of poverty to a certain degree, you know. So he would probably look at our churches and, and ask, what are we doing that is excluding the people who need us the most? And I'm sure it's a, a lot. Yeah. 
Or you could take him to Bristol as well, because if you stand on a high hill and you look northeast towards Warmley and Hannam yeah. around there, there's a little green light you can see illuminating all over Bristol. And that green light is to signify this is where John Wesley spoke. <laughs> and obviously that's where the world's oldest Methodist church still is. Yeah. yeah. Right in the city centre. Brilliant. Good choice, John Wesley. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Gladys, thank you so much for your hospitality. And I have to say, congratulations on being an American that knows how to make a decent cup of tea as well. <laughs> you know, that is really, really high praise indeed. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you, sir. And I was just going to say one final thing with John, John Wesley. Maybe you could give him as a present some super shoes. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? His father told him when he went off to Oxford that he he should go out and run around the field a few times every morning to clear his brain. So I suspect he's really? a wee runner as well. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Good.